This week, I explain why I love the Barbie movie. We dismantle the lie that we live in a patriarchy. Global boiling, the new fear the left will use to control us. The Brittany Higgins Bruce Learman saga's latest chapter, we'll explain that simply and clearly for you. And John Howard speaks sense on The Voice. G'day and welcome to episode 217 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday, August the 4th, 2023. I'm Damien Curry, and this is your weekly news and commentary summary show, first streaming every Friday night at 8pm here on ADH-TV, then available anytime for you to watch afterwards on demand. So you can catch up on all the news of the week and get smart for the weekend. Now, before we get into Barbie, we're going to have a fun show tonight, I'll tell you. Uh, just a couple of things. Firstly, this happened in your Senate on Wednesday night. Mate, you can shut your mouth. Uh, Senator Ma you can Senator, shut your Senator mouth. McKim. People Senator are McKim. dying. Senator McKim, resume you seat. And sociopaths like you. Senator McKim, I'm not going to cop interjections from sociopaths like Senator Canavan. Senator I will McKim, not resume your seat. And what they've got to answer for is death, disease, displacement, starvation, people dying of thirst, arable farming lands turning into desert, and most likely billions of people dead by the end of this century, and the collapse of the ecosystems that actually support all human life on this planet. That's what people like Senator Canavan have got to answer for. That was Nicholas McKim a senator from Tasmania. And guess from which party? Mm. Which party has lots of politicians who behave like that? You guessed it, the Greens. Could you imagine Australia being run by an entire government made up of people like that? Think about that the next time you think voting Green might be a nice thing to do, you know, for the environment. Huh. Now look, the last thing I want to see in our parliaments is Chinese communist-style politeness. Because behind every smiling, clapping, calm, polite Chinese politician lurks a potential sociopath who might disappear you at any second. Just ask China's foreign minister, who hasn't been seen for about a month. Imagine Penny Wong disappearing suddenly and the government not saying anything about it. That's basically what has just happened in very polite, calm Chinese politics. So we don't like that. Passion and freedom of speech and expression is very good in politics. But only if it's tempered by a good argument and common sense. Not when it's someone behaving like a 10-year-old child, demanding he gets his way, making absurd claims about crazy things, and calling people psychopaths. One of the rules of the Senate is you're not supposed to call your opponents names. But if you want an easy entry into the Senate in Aussie politics, folks, just move to Tasmania. The state gets 12 senators, just like every other state, despite its very small population. So everyone knows a senator in Tassie. The joke is if you stay in Tassie long enough, you'll just accidentally become a senator. But Nick McKim, sadly you are proving to us that you are every bit the typical green. Meanwhile, the American elites are busy apologising to Donald Trump for stealing the last presidential election from him by suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. Of course they're not. They also impeached him over a phone call for daring to ask the Ukrainian president to investigate the Bidens for running what seemed like a corrupt influence racket in Ukraine. This wasn't fair because the Bidens were running a corrupt influence racket in lots of other countries too, so it seems like it wasn't respectful to suggest that their global empire of corruption was just focused on one small country. We truly do live in upside-down world. They've thrown everything they can possibly find at Trump, folks, which is kind of like the establishment throwing everything at the people because the people dared to elect someone to stand up to it, the establishment. Back in your box, peasants. This is a circus. Everyone with half a brain knows it's a circus and nobody is taking it seriously except those still suffering Trump derangement syndrome, which sadly for Trump is 99% of Democrats and about 30% of Republicans and all of the media, it would seem. 
Why does poor old Donald Trump bother? Because he actually cares about the country, which just makes me like him and respect him more and more every day. The media here are incapable of critically analysing anything, so they just repeat their US affiliate network's lines. It's the third time Donald Trump has been indicted, they shout in horror. Missing the actual story, which is that the US legal system is being used three times politically in a way that tears at the very fabric of the systems and institutions and conventions of the nation. There they go, doing exactly what they accuse Trump of doing. But it's not as if we in Australia don't have our own problem with politicisation of the legal system. More on that later when we discuss the absolute train wreck that the ACT has become. They have a Labour-Green coalition government down there, you know. But let's get into the serious stuff of the show this week, folks. It is Barbie time, and I think we need a little change of vibe around here. Ah, that's better. Whew. So, I forced myself to go see the Barbie movie this week, and it was everything you would expect from modern, woke, corporate America. Ah yes, the perverse backwards world in which we live, where corporations are the moral guardians of all that is right and good. Apart from being the least subtle, most preachy, cliched load of rubbish I've ever seen passed off as a movie pretending to have some artistic depths, it was just god-awful. But of course, surprise, surprise, if men dare to speak out against this two hours of sexist dribble that paints them as brainless morons who need women to help them be human, then we, the men, have the problem, folks. American conservative commentator Ben Shapiro has been slammed for criticising the film. I bet he loved our movie, right, Ken? Ah, yes, but men must not criticise the Barbie movie. It is not allowed. Chloe Williams, a News Corp journo from the Sydney Bureau, oh, sorry, her bio says she's actually from Gadigal Land, apologies, popped up in the Daily Tally, Herald Sun and Courier Mail to tell us all that Ben Shapiro hate watches divisive sexist Barbie movie. The film of the year is being slammed as divisive and sexist towards men, with Ben Shapiro leading the charge. Ah... Uh, you like those quotation marks around sexist and divisive? Just to show that it's the cookers saying that, not anybody with, with a real brain like, like those guys in the, in the media. See how they play with the language too? Ben Shapiro, an intelligent and highly, articula highly articulate, <laughs> not like me, highly articulate conservative man, didn't just watch the movie and hate it. Oh no, he has hate in his heart, folks. He viewed the film through a lens of hate. He is hate-filled to his very core, and therefore he must be ignored. Subtle, but not so subtle, really. But Ben really did hate it. This movie is not just a piece of shit. This movie is a flaming piece of dog shit piled atop an entire dumpster on fire, piled atop a landfill filled with dog shit. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. On every possible level, it is a horrific movie. And I couldn't agree more. So what is this film actually all about? Because it left me completely confused. Was it trying to be a clever feminist commentary about Barbie dolls and the patriarchy? If so, it failed for its shallow preachiness. Was it trying to be funny? If so, it completely failed. It wasn't intentionally funny at all, and many of the jokes were rude and inappropriate for kids. Was it trying to send a message to girls to be themselves? That it's okay to just be a mum? or just be a worker, that you don't have to be a superstar, a high-flying corporate achiever and everything. In which case, it was a critique of modern feminism itself, and I'd applaud that, but it was a very confused and muddled one. They, they really have no basic idea of the film. They don't know whether they hate Barbie or that we're supposed to kind of like Barbie. It, it, it seems they kind of despise Barbie as a fascist emblem, as we'll get to. The basic sort of premise of the film, politically speaking, is that men and women are on two sides of the divide and they, and they hate each other. And literally the only way you can have a happy world is if the women ignore the men and the men ignore the women. 
That seems to be the, the final outcome of this film. Okay, well, at least I'm in good company. From the beginning, you know what this movie is going to be, and it's gonna be a very cynical take on what Barbie is, which is so weird. I don't know why Mattel would turn over its IP to filmmakers who clearly hate the IP. It's as though you were going to make Toy Story, except that toys are all evil. They're all bad, and you're supposed to hate them, and you should burn them. Because that's kind of the message of the film, is that the Barbies are bad for the world. Ben goes on to reveal the many, many, many contradictions in plot, storyline, and philosophy that make this film the great blob of garbage that it is. And most importantly, he points out that this is no film for little girls. So, mums, beware. Wait until it comes out on video and borrow it from a friend so you don't have to pay for it. Half of the four jokes in this movie are inappropriate for anyone under 16. Anyway, Barbie heads off to the real world to find out why she's having human feelings. Although this movie is so literal that they actually tell you why before she goes. It's aimed at people with an IQ of 70, modern third wave woke feminists. So, they tell you that Barbie is sad because the little girl playing with her in the real world is sad and she has to go find her. Uh-huh. And of course, as soon as Barbie goes to the real world, it's a cliche undergraduate gender studies 101 hell. Sexism everywhere. Ken and Barbie head off to the real world to try to find the, the person who is playing with Barbie. And immediately upon arriving in the real world, Barbie is hit with an overwhelming tsunami of sexism. Like right away, boom, she walks in, and a bunch of men just leer at her and say, give us a smile, blondie, which is something that no one under the age of 70 has, has said to a woman in the recent past. Give us a smile, blondie. Seriously? Aye, aye. We, we get Barbie explaining that all of the men who are, who are leering at her and gazing at her, they, are, they have an undertone of violence. Everything's in, she, she's threatened. She's physically threatened because this is the real world. The real world is not like Barbie land. In the real world, all women are, are victims. They are deep and abiding victims of the system as we'll learn by the use of the word patriarchy no less than 10 times in this film. She gets arrested like twice for various crimes. Even the police officers are rabid, raging sexists. The police officers are hitting on Barbie. They're making observations about her appearance. Ken, meanwhile, is getting super happy because Ken, who has been sort of an underling in Barbie land, now he's realizing he's part of the patriarchy and the patriarchy is awesome. Ken is loving the patriarchy. Now, you might imagine at this point that the way the film is gonna go is that Ken and Barbie are gonna have to some sort of agree about seeing each other as equal human beings. You might imagine that's where it's going wrong. That's not where the film is going to go. You might have thought that what you were going to get was Ken gets treated with respect as a person and Barbie gets treated with respect as a person. And that's a better, nope, wrong. In the end, not to skip ahead, Barbie Land just gets restored and the men are still subservient. That's the best, that's the best version of the world. And that's all you need to know, folks. Right there in that 90 seconds of wisdom from Ben Shapiro is everything that is wrong with this film and everything that is wrong with modern third wave feminism. Modern third wave feminism is not the good feminism of women being empowered to have their choice, have choice in their lives. The suffragette movement seeking the vote, the ability of women to enter the workforce outside the home if they so choose, yet still to be respected if they stay at home if they so choose. No, modern third wave feminism is sexist. It's about revenge and hate and punishing men for being, well, men. It's about demonizing normal male heterosexual urges and behavior while making all other kinds of sexual expression positive. It's a form of Marxism. It's Marxism's perversion of the women's rights movement in a sense. And like all Marxist theories, it reduces reality to an incredibly simplistic narrative. You're unhappy because somebody else ate all the pies and you didn't get any. That's Marxism in a nutshell. View everything through the lens of an oppressor and an oppressed. Play on people's misery, make them feel like a righteous victim rather than unhappy for any of their own wrongdoing or thinking. Play on the power of envy, get them angry, have a revolution against the supposed oppressor and everything will magically turn wonderful in the world because that is the natural state of the world. Yeah, nah. Tried it in the 20th century, didn't really work. Total disaster. It's the kind of worldview you can only sustain if you have an IQ under 80, which is why anyone with half a brain works this out in their first year at uni, spends the next three years just pretending to go along with it also, not to upset the sociology professor who's clearly in need of help, and never picks up a book on Marxism again for the rest of their lives. 
It's also why anyone with half a brain today runs away from universities, not towards them. The Marxist worldview isn't just obviously wrong, it's also really, really dumb. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. You have to want to know, okay? Do it again. Yeah, they call it critical theory, the critical lens on the world. But it's a lens designed by a two-year-old child. Somebody didn't eat all the pies. You're not unhappy because of big, fat, rich white men and the lie of a patriarchy. Life is actually complicated and hard by nature. Nature isn't a utopia, by the way. Lots of people actually had to work really hard for centuries to build the wonderful society and world that we all enjoy today. Wake up, kids, or you're gonna lose it all. So now, I'm gonna tell you why I love the Barbie movie. What you talking about, Willis? I love the Barbie movie because it demonstrates so very, very clearly that postmodern neo-Marxist, whatever you want to call it, woke third wave modern feminism makes absolutely no sense. The movie doesn't intend to make this point, it just does it by accident. And that is why I love it so much. The movie itself makes no sense because modern feminism, the sexist patriarchy lie kind of feminism, makes no sense. The logic is circular. The theory is so dumb, it can only work if you view all men as dumb, one-dimensional buffheads. And in order to make it work, you have to make the assumptions that the movie makes about men. Assumptions that are so infantile and idiotic and frankly insulting that they could only be made if the men in the movie were actually one-dimensional plastic dolls. In other words, if you tried to make a movie pushing the garbage worldview about men that this movie is pushing, it'd be impossible because no actual human man is as shallow and one-dimensional as would be required to make the case for the modern feminist worldview. So modern feminist theory can only hold up in a world where men quite literally are made of plastic and are not real. So thank you. Thank you, Warner Brothers. Thank you, Margot Robbie. Thank you, idiot woke Hollywood producers and directors. Thank you. You've shown us all what a lie modern feminism and the concept of the patriarchy really are. Of course, a, a movie like this one can't lose. Little girls will want to go because it's Barbie. And despite feminists' best efforts, little girls like to play dress up and play with dolls. Why? Because there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's fun, that's why. Being girly is not just for trans men, you know, lefties. Day 74 of being a girl, round of applause for the makeup. And I wore this outfit shopping today, and I thought that these might be my new shopping shorts. That's lovely, Dylan. God, woke ideology is so messed up and full of sick contradictions and hypocrisy, isn't it? Anyway, we're here to try together to make sense of all the madness. So, little girls like dolls, and they're gonna go see the Barbie movie. And big girls wanna reminisce. And some guys do too. And that's fine, and it's fun. A movie like this could have been so much fun if we were still just allowed to have fun these days. So people are gonna to wanna to go and see it. Then there are people like me who wanna go and see it to understand what all the fuss is about and what the cultural implications of the movie might be. So this movie is making an absolute packet. As Matt Walsh pointed out in his Daily Wire show this week, quoting data from The Hollywood Reporter. The summer box office just went nuclear. Filmmaker Greta Gerwig's female-fueled Barbie opened to a historic $155 million domestically, a threshold usually reserved for male-driven superhero fare or marquee IP, such as the final Harry Potter movie. After gushing for several more paragraphs about Barbie, the article does mention that Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer also opened this weekend to an enormous haul, raking in $80 million. This makes it Nolan's biggest opening weekend for any of his non-Batman films. Especially impressive, far more impressive than Barbie's performance, as we'll see, because his movie is an original three-hour R-rated historical drama. It is very difficult to make that kind of film into a smash hit. People don't generally flock to theaters to watch incredibly long character studies about historical figures. That is unprecedented, or nearly so. There is, however, plenty of precedent for moviegoers crowding theaters to watch movies based on familiar brands. Exactly. And I can't wait to see Oppenheimer, by the way. I've just got to find four hours of uh, free time to do it in. 
Uh, it's also highly probable, by the way, that this novelty effect with Barbie will wear off fast. It's unlikely that the post-cinema revenues will be much good. So the last thing that Hollywood producers and directors should think is that this success comes from the woke themes of this movie or the quality of this movie. Quite the opposite. People feel like they've been catfished and they sure won't be coming back for Barbie 2 or 3 or 27, like this UK commentator. Immediately I'm like, here we go again. Here we go again, this sort of construct that, or, despite everything that's happened in the last 50 years, all men are awful till they prove otherwise, all women are downtrodden, oppressed, and if only it wasn't for ghastly men, they'd be ruling the world. You know, Lily Allen said she went to see Barbie and Oppenheimer, and, and the clear conclusion was if women were in charge, none of that would have happened, right? I mean, it's just, it is exhausting to me. I mean, I, could, I suspected this would happen when we started having a conversation about whether Barbie's a feminist icon. And I just thought to myself, why does Barbie need to be a feminist icon? Anyone who's grown up with Barbies knows that she's just a doll that girls like to play with. And then 10 seconds into the film, I'm just being shoehorned with this ideology, this, you know, patriarchy mm. this and feminism that. And I'm just thinking it's a giant catfish of a film. Why can't we just have a film about dolls? The people that made this film have never seen any of the other Barbie animals. No! Films because it's completely unrelated. It's a giant catfish. Yep, that's Esther Krakow looking fabulously Barbie-like on Piers Morgan's talk TV show. She also points out that all of the Kens in the movie, all the male dolls, are portrayed as being dumb as dishwater. They're so incompetent. And it's like, how can... And at the end of the film, they try and say, oh, but we're all humans and we're all equal. OK, but you've, paste, you've painted half of humanity as incompetent halfwits. So okay. exactly how does that work? Yeah, how does that work? Maybe the Marxists don't want peace. They want war between the sexes so there'll be no people left, as Joe Jackson once sang. And Mother Earth shall survive. No people, just Mother Earth. Once upon a time, I'd have thought that was a far-fetched thing to say. Today, not so much. So, since little girls everywhere are being told that they live in a patriarchy by corporate America, the patriarchy lie is one that persists despite being torn to bits repeatedly. And I think we need to tear it to bits. One of the UK's most woke feminist journalists and commentators decided foolishly a few years ago to take on Jordan Peterson for arguing that the patriarchy is a neo-Marxist lie. She annihilated him, of course, because the patriarchy is a a theory that's supported by mountains of social science work across all of academia across decades. So it must be true, right? It's not like it could be torn apart in under 60 seconds by a smart academic with a different worldview. I mean, that's, so that's my idea of the patriarchy, which is a, a system of male dominance of society. Yeah, but that's not my sense of the patriarchy. So what's, what's yours? Well, in what sense is our society male dominated? Uh, the fact that the vast majority of wealth is owned by men, the vast majority of capital and is owned by men. Women do more unpaid it's a very, labor. Very tiny proportion of men and a huge proportion of people who are seriously disaffected are men. Most people in prison are men. Most people who are uh, on the street are men. Most victims of violent crime are men. Most people who commit suicide are men. Uh, most men, most people who die in wars are men. People who do worse in school are men. It's like. Where's the dominance here, precisely? Oops. But we've been told that there's a patriarchy so many times. I mean, you know, why would anyone want to lie to us like that? What you're doing is you're taking a tiny substrata of hyper-successful men and using that to represent the entire structure of, the, of Western society. There's nothing about that that's vaguely appropriate. But I could say equally well that most rape victims are women. You know, terrible things happen to people of both sexes. And you could say that with, with, with perfect utility, but that doesn't provide any evidence for the existence of a male-dominated patriarchy. Well, there it are... just means that terrible things happen to both genders, which they certainly do. But there are almost no women who rape men, for example. So that is an asymmetry there in sexual violence. Well, yes, there's an, as there's an asymmetry in all sorts of places, but that doesn't mean that Western culture is a male-dominated patriarchy. The fact that there are asymmetries has nothing to do with your basic argument. Uh, hang on, let's just stop that there for a sec. In order for Helen Lewis to stand up to Peterson's complete demolition of the idea of a patriarchy, she has to resort to rape data, something that doesn't reflect the ordinary lives of 99.99% of men but which reflects the sick criminal deviance of 0.01% of men. That's her defense 
for the claim that we live in a male-dominated patriarchy? That's all she's got to fall back on? A plea to emotion based on a horrible statistic of deviant, unusual behaviour? If that's all she's got, folks, she's got nothing. This is, this is a trope that people just accept. Western society is a male-dominated patriarchy. It's like, no, it's not. That's not true. And, and even, if it, even if it has a patriarchal structure to some degree, the, uh, the fundamental basis of that structure is not power. It's competence. That's why our society works. It's only when a, when a structure degenerates into tyranny that the fundamental relationships between people become dependent on power. It's not power. If you hire a plumber who's likely to be male, it's not because there's roving bands of tyrannical plumbers forcing you to make that choice. And it's the case with almost every interaction that you have at the face of our culture. You're dealing with people who are offering a service of one form or another, who are usually part of the broad middle class, and who offer, and what you're looking for is the person who can offer the best service, and you can find it. It's not a consequence of being dominated by anything that's tyrannical. And Jordan Peterson isn't the only person standing up to the patriarchy lie. Author and presenter of the Factual Feminist podcast, Christina Hoff Summers, says a lot of the assumptions that people are walking around with in their heads these days about gender disparities are the result of flawed statistics repeated over and over and amplified by a compliant media class. Most of the standard feminist injustice statistics are exaggerated or just plain wrong. It's not true that women are being cheated out of 23% of their salaries or that one in five will be victims of sexual assault. And it's also the case that in many critical domains, women are faring far better than men. Let's consider a few. Take education. There, it is women who are the privileged sex at every level of education, from preschool to graduate school, and across ethnic and class lines, women get better grades, they win most of the honors and prizes, and they're far more likely to go to college. That can't be right. The facts do not fit the narrative that we were taught in school. There's an old joke about regular science versus social science. In regular science, you develop a hypothesis and test it in reality. If the test works, your hypothesis is right. If it doesn't work, your hypothesis is wrong. But in social science, you develop a hypothesis and test it in reality. If the test works, your hypothesis is right. If it doesn't, then reality is wrong. Now look at the workplace. Women's groups focus a lot of attention on people at the pinnacle of achievement, CEOs of Fortune 500 corporations or tenured physics professors at MIT or US senators. And they're right, there are too few women. But what happens when you consider the entire workforce? There may be a few women, but the lethal professions are largely a male preserve. And as my favorite dissident feminist, Camille Paglia, has noted, quote, it is overwhelmingly men who do the dirty, dangerous work of building roads, pouring concrete, laying bricks, tarring roofs, hanging electric wires, excavating natural gas and sewage lines, cutting and clearing trees and bulldozing. Well, is it any surprise that the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that every year about 5,000 Americans die in workplace accidents, 92% of them men? Now, we hear all about the Fortune 500 CEOs, but what about the unfortunate 4,600. Now, these statistics are American, but it's highly likely things are pretty much the same throughout the developed Western world. We've been lied to, or at best, intentionally misled by deceptive academics with an ax to grind and an agenda to push. And we should be furious about it. University social science departments should have their funding pulled until they regain public faith, because their current performance is an utter disgrace. <laughs>those of you who've been watching the other side for a while will know that we've covered quite closely the inquiry in the act that was looking into whether charges should have ever been laid by the territory's public prosecutor shane drumgold against bruce lerman over the allegation that he raped Brittany higgins the findings of that inquiry have now been reported former queensland judge walter sofronoff was the chairman of the inquiry and he handed his findings to the act's chief minister Andrew Barr on Monday. But Mr Barr 
isn't making them public. Unbelievable. Your tax money, folks. But the Labor Green government of the ACT says, nah, you're not allowed to see the findings yet, kids, sorry. Mr Barr says the findings of the inquiry won't be released for a month as the government determines how to deal with what are likely to be serious adverse findings against ACT Chief Prosecutor Shane Drumgold. Drumgold has been on leave since May. But the Australian newspaper says it's got a hold of a copy of the report. So thank God for journalism and once again for the Murdoch media for keeping us informed where the ABC and others failed. The report finds that Drumgold knowingly lied to the Supreme Court, engaged in serious malpractice and grossly unethical conduct, preyed on a junior lawyer's inexperience, betrayed that junior lawyer who trusted him and treated criminal litigation as, quote, a poker game in which a prosecutor can hide the cards. No wonder the Labor Green cowards don't want us to see this report as we are entitled to. So don't blame us if the reporting is inaccurate, as we're delivering the news secondhand here in the public interest and doing our best despite your attempts to stop us, Mr Barr. What a total disgrace this ACT government is. The Labor Greens coalition. Imagine that at a federal level. Anyway, regardless of the findings about Drumgold himself, this board of inquiry was held in May and was designed to examine the actions of Drumgold and the police during the investigation and the trial of Mr Learman. One very important finding is that the public prosecutor was right to press charges based on the evidence available at the time. Mr Sofronoff's findings reportedly state that police acted lawfully when they charged Mr Learman and that Mr Drumgold's decision to proceed with the prosecution was correct. But that only means that there was enough evidence to proceed with a prosecution attempt. It does not say anything about Learman's guilt or innocence. It just means that Drumgold didn't do anything wrong in going ahead with the prosecution. Bruce Learman also isn't happy about the fact that the report isn't being released yet. You see leaks popping up in the news. He told the Daily Mail newspaper that his interests weren't properly safeguarded during the inquiry process and he wasn't allowed legal representation at the inquiry and his request for funding was denied. Lerman was tried in the ACT Supreme Court back in October, but the trial was derailed when a juror who brought banned research material into the jury room was uncovered. Then in December, Mr Drumgold announced that there would not be a retrial because of concerns over Ms Higgins' mental health, which has left Mr Learman without any way to clear his name in court. Higgins then reportedly received a multi-million dollar payout from the federal government for workplace injury to her mental health and future career impacts. Media commentators have suggested that this far exceeds normal payouts for workplace injuries, and there have been calls from the federal opposition for an inquiry into the payment to Ms Higgins. Ms Higgins has subsequently undertaken a number of jobs, including a United Nations internship. But back to the Sofronoff inquiry. This inquiry itself was actually set up by Shane Drumgold to look into the behaviours of the Australian Federal Police, who look after local policing in the ACT and their handling of this case with his office. Somehow I don't think Mr Drumgold thought things were going to turn out quite this way, and nor was the ACT government. But the Australian newspaper reports that Walter Sofronoff says every one of the allegations made by Mr Drumgold that sparked the inquiry was baseless. The newspaper says the findings may lead to criminal prosecution against Drumgold for perversion of the course of justice. Wow. If so, the Labor Greens ACT coalition government has a lot to answer for. Mr Sofronoff reportedly found that Mr Drumgold had lost objectivity and, quote, did not act with fairness and detachment as was required by his role. And, the Australian reports, Sofronoff said he was deeply disturbed by Mr Drumgold's ignorance of ethical principles and accused him of a Pontius Pilate-like detachment. Three of the most serious findings in this uh, report were these. Number one, that he made representations to Chief Justice Lucy McCallum in the proceedings against Mr Lerman 
that were untrue and an invention of his own. Number two, that he was guilty of a serious breach of duty by failing to comply with the golden rule of disclosure that sits at the heart of a fair trial by failing to disclose documents where there was simply no doubt that those police investigation documents should have been disclosed. And thirdly, that the DPP kept the defence in the dark about the steps that he was taking to deny them from the documents that meant that they were in no position to even mount a challenge. This is super damning stuff and completely astounding, really. No wonder the government doesn't want it out there because they can't escape their ultimate responsibility here. The main document that Drumgold didn't give to the defence team was the so-called Mueller report, which was an internal briefing police note by Detective Superintendent Scott Mueller that detailed discrepancies in Ms Higgins' evidence and suggested police didn't think there was enough evidence to prosecute Mr Learman. Pretty important stuff. As far as the role of the police was concerned, Sofronov found that they, quote, performed their duties in absolute good faith, with great determination, although faced with obstacles, and they put together a sound case. They conducted a thorough investigation, he said. Sofronov also said the inquiry itself wasn't justified by any of Drumgold's allegations. Six months of time and money spent, personal and professional consequences, an inquiry that's caused lasting pain to many people and which has demonstrated the allegations to be not just incorrect, but wholly false and without any rational basis. The office of the DPP will now face a multi-million dollar claim by Mr Learman on the grounds of malfeasance following Mr Sofronoff's findings of gross misconduct by Mr Drumgold. Not one to want to, you know, scare the pants off everyone. The UN Secretary General says the era of global warming has ended and the era of global boiling has begun. As a mere mortal, it's hard to know what the hell is going on. The scientists don't agree, despite a lot of them saying that they do, and there is consensus. There's consensus about some things and not about others, like the rate of warming and the causes of warming and whether there's a damn thing that people in small countries like Australia and Great Britain can do about it. July will have been the hottest summer July ever recorded in the Northern Hemisphere, say the experts. Our cousins in Canada and the US are sweltering right now. Global temperature records have been breaking all summer. That heat feeding wildfires that have been destroying communities across Europe. Now, new analysis shows July is on track to be the hottest month in recorded history. We can already say with absolute certainty that it is going to be the warmest July. The UN Secretary General points to climate change and says it's terrifying. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. In the U.S., where 150 million people are under heat alerts, New York has declared a state of emergency. Heat kills uh, more New Yorkers every year than any other kind of extreme weather event. That clip was from a report by Canada's national broadcaster, the CBC. Here's a PR tip for the UN. If you want to add credibility to your cause, hysterical rhetoric like global boiling doesn't help. It has the reverse effect. It makes you look like irrational fools. South Australian Senator Alec Antic made this very serious point very humorously in federal parliament this week. We know that the climate alarmists terrify people with their language, but even by their own standards, this latest foray into the catastrophic language uh, is pretty outrageous. It's quite frankly sent the left in this building off like a rocket. They've been running around all week, waving their arms around like the robot from Lost in Space, uh, and it's all because of this, I believe. But you see, this isn't about facts, and it isn't about data, science or the environment. It's about politics, control and fear. And the alarmists need to remain fresh with their language to stay on the cutting edge. Otherwise, some other activists will crawl out from their mum's basement and take their mantle as the chief alarmist. So when I was a kid in the 1980s, Madam Acting Deputy President, they used the term greenhouse effect. But who's going to fear that? The greenhouse is a friendly place. So when the greenhouse effect became defunct, they started using global warming. But you're not going to frighten kids with that. So they moved on to climate change. And then they could blame 
a snowstorm and a hurricane from climate change, but they needed to grow the fear exponentially. And then we got climate crisis, climate emergency, climate breakdown, and even climate apocalypse. But the question really is, where to from here? And so I've taken the liberty of coming up with five suggested names that I think will be much more terrifying so that the UN can use them in advance. I've come up with, number one, global climate inferno, which sounds pretty terrifying. Number two, mega universe heat death. That one should work. Number three, super global spine chillingly hot, which I think might terrify the kids. Uh, stop using your stove, you capitalists. I reckon that one will work. And then the final one that I held up uh, for, for consideration is you will die soon, which I think should do the job. Terrify everybody, inform nobody. Um, that's the way of the world now. South Australian Senator Alec Antic speaking in the Senate this week. Global boiling aside, let's, let's put that aside and get back to the more rational side of the debate. Former UK Labor Prime Minister Tony Blair told the political editor of the New Statesman magazine in the UK this past week something that shocked a lot of people. He said, quote, it's the single biggest global challenge and Britain should play its part in that, but there's not much Britain can do about it when one year's rise in China's emissions would outscore the whole of Britain's emissions for a year. His argument seems to reflect that of many Australian commentators that the real zero in net zero is the zero effect that any change we make in our country would have on global warming. That it's just shooting ourselves in the foot to cut back on our coal and other industry to reduce carbon emissions while other bigger countries continue to increase theirs. Blair went on to say, don't ask us to do a huge amount when frankly whatever we do in Britain is not really going to impact climate change. The number one issue today, and this is where Britain could play a part, is how do you finance the energy transition? Because basically the developed world's emissions are going down, but the developing world's are going up. These countries have got to grow. So how do you finance the transition? Secondly, how do you accelerate the technology? Well, I'll tell you how. Capitalism. More technology and more development, not less. That's the real solution to climate change. But it's not the one that the Greens want to hear. They've been trying to use global warming to push a socialist and globalist agenda of centralised control. So having a real technological solution isn't in their political interests. It'll just stuff them right up. With energy prices on the up and up, adding to other inflation pressures, Aussies, like their British cousins, are fast waking up to the fact that we might be, as the London Telegraph newspaper puts it, moving towards net zero at a speed near the limits of what the electorate will bear. The Labor Party in the UK has already all but abandoned its £28 billion a year green prosperity plan. Labor leader Keir Starmer's plan to decarbonise all electricity generation by 2030 is an ambitious and risky one that will also cost billions, so it may also get the chop by election time. Tony Blair's comments reminded me of the excellent argument made by Trigonometry podcast host Constantine Kisson in his Oxford University debate that went viral earlier this year. We are told that your generation cares more than any other about one issue in particular, and that issue is climate change. We are told that many of you suffer from climate anxiety. You wish to save the planet. And for tonight, and tonight only, I will join you I will join you in worshipping at the feet of St. Greta of climate change. <laughs> Let us all accept right here, right now, that we are living through a climate emergency and our stocks of polar bears are running extremely low. I join you in this view. I truly do. Now, what are we to do about this huge problem facing humanity? What can we in Britain do? We can only do one thing. You know why? This country is responsible for 2% of global carbon emissions, which means that if Britain was to sink into the sea right now, it would make absolutely no difference to the issue of climate change. You know why? Because the future of the climate is going to be decided in Asia and in Latin America by poor people who couldn't give a shit about saving the planet. He's right. 
The arrogance and self-righteousness of the West's coffee culture set is completely out of touch with global economic and social reality. Do we seriously think that shutting down our few remaining coal-fired power stations, sending energy prices soaring, and putting our national security and well-being at risk is going to make one dot of difference while China builds 100 new coal power stations a year. I mean, seriously. As Kissin says, the success or failure of efforts to reduce carbon emissions are not going to be de decided by Britain or Australia. It's going to be decided by poor people in Asia and Latin America who don't care about saving the planet. You know why? Because they're poor. Because they're poor. I come from Russia, which is not a poor country, it's a middle-income country. 20% of households in Russia do not have an indoor toilet. What they have is an outdoor toilet. And I don't mean one of those nice port that we get here. I don't even mean a Glastonbury port <laughs> I mean a wooden shack with a hole in the ground that holds a collected fermented memory of the last 10,000 visits. <laughs> How many of you are going to go home tonight and say, let's rip out our bathroom and erect a Siberian shithouse in the back garden? <laughs> and if you're not, why should they? 120 million people in China do not have enough food. I don't mean that they don't get dessert. I mean they suffer from malnutrition. That means that their immune system is breaking down because they don't have enough food. You're not going to get them to stay poor. You are not going to get these people to stay poor. You're not even going to get them to not want to be richer. And so, I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, there is only one thing we can do in this country to stop climate change, and that is to make scientific and technological breakthroughs that will create the clean energy that is not only clean, but also cheap. That's Konstantin Kissin, the Russian-British satirist, author and political commentator, co-host of the Trigonometry podcast there, speaking at the Oxford Union. He's dead right. So stop the silly protests, kids. Hit the books. Study. Learn about energy technology if you're really worried about climate change and help find the solution to our global energy needs that will replace fossil fuels. Because the answer is development for developing nations, not some idiot Gaia-worshipping green myth that's both anti-human and anti-technology. Despite the Prime Minister's ongoing insistence that the voice will have nothing to do with a treaty or in any way lead to a diminishing of the equal rights of all Australians to ownership of this country, past comments and tweets continue to pop up. This week, Pauline Hanson shared this quote from a press release from the PM from his opposition leader days. An Albanese government will establish a Makarata commission as a priority. It will work with a voice to parliament when it is established. The Makarata commission's treaty responsibilities will initially include recommending a framework for federal treaty making. Remember, the voice comes from the Uluru statement from the heart. The Uluru Statement from the Heart has three demands. A voice to Parliament leading to a Makarata Commission or a truth-telling commission about Australia's past and then a treaty. I personally think this is a disgrace. It puts too much weight on the earlier inhabitants of the country as if they were one united nation of peoples who all arrived here at the same time and shared a national identity and culture and it ignores completely the massive contributions of all later arrivals of the past 250 years who actually built modern Australia on the basis of British principles of property rights and the rule of law. But even if you disagree with me and think a treaty is the way to go for prosperous and peaceful, happy future for Australia, you can't ask people to vote yes on a referendum by misleading them into thinking the conversation will stop there when you know it will not. You know that this is about treaty. Doing that is downright deceptive. This is not about a treaty. But as part of treaty, which we this guess is, will be a following step. This is not about a do treaty. Do you foresee that compensation would be this paid? This is not about a treaty. This isn't about that. 
Pauline Hanson also posted a video of Albo from his later opposition days in Parliament. The voice must be followed by truth-telling because until we acknowledge the reality of our history, we are shackled to its demons. And truth must be followed by a Makarata Commission. Makarata is about conflict resolution, justice and, crucially, self-determination. It's a path to national treaty that acknowledges the pre-existing rights of people in a land where sovereignty was never ceded. That acknowledges that we are on what is Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. Oh, well, that's news to me. I didn't realise we'd had a referendum on that point. No, this is not Aboriginal land. It's Australian land owned by whoever holds those property rights under the law. And the rest of the land is owned by all of us as Australians. These people aren't playing with words and concepts like they're in some university social science class anymore and they need to realise it. They're playing with fire. And the sooner they realise this, the better. The division that could be caused to our nation from this Uluru statement and subsequent voice referendum is no small thing. There'll be no point blaming the right-wing nutjob cookers when there's a God almighty backlash. Sane Australians like us, who sit in the sensible centre, who believe in the rule of law and what it means to be Australian, while simultaneously respecting Aboriginal culture and earlier presence in this country, but don't buy into this radical treaty, sovereignty and unequal rights approach, should be very worried about the conflict that might arise when the two extremes clash. This is simply not sustainable, this rubbish. And it's not good for unifying people in this country. It's good for sowing division and creating extremes. And throughout history, that always leads to violence. Let's pray it doesn't here. I don't know if you saw Alan Jones' interview with John Howard, but it's not to be missed. You can find it in Alan's show from Tuesday night on demand here on ADH TV. It's a pity young Australians who carry on about the importance of listening to Indigenous elders don't have as much respect for non-Indigenous elders. Here are two men, two of our smartest, in their 80s, speaking more common sense in 15 minutes than you'll hear in a year of watching boomers and Gen X, Y and Z commentators, me included. What are we going to do when this generation finally leaves us? The former PM was celebrating his 84th birthday, sharp as ever, as is Alan, who's also remarkable for his age. Mr Howard addressed the question of treaty and where the voice will lead, saying the very idea of treaty is preposterous. It's as plain as the proverbial pike staff that this government supports the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And that's got three components. We've got the voice as yet to be explained. It's got treaty-making process, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And it's got truth-telling. Now, the idea that a sovereign nation makes a treaty with part of itself is preposterous. Treaties are made between sovereign states, nations. They're not made between a sovereign state and part of that nation. The Commonwealth of Australia came into being in 1901. It doesn't make treaties with the state of New South Wales. New South Wales' separate sovereignty disappeared, subject of the Constitution, in 1901. And the idea is preposterous that you make a treaty with part of yourself. And as for truth telling, I don't quite know what that means, but <laughs> I can tell you this, that we have been guaranteed time without number, that the voice is only the first step. Yes. Now, if you think the voice is bad, there's more coming. It's amazing hearing a coherent statesman speak these days, isn't it? Reminds me of a different time. I mean, contrast that with the flapping lunacy we saw in the Senate on Wednesday night from that Green Senator we started the show with. At heart, Mr Howard told Alan Jones, the approach that the government's taken is an affront because it is so very deceitful. In one breath we hear, it's all very simple, it's a, it's a gracious response to a generous offer. Now that sounds nice and we'd like to believe that, but we're not told precisely what the voice means. 
because in the next breath we're told, well, once it's passed, we'll sit down and work out the rules. And that's an extraordinary way of amending a constitution. You ask people to vote in favour of the amendment in principle, and then you work out what it means. I'd have thought the sensible thing to do was to say, this is what it means in detail, and if you vote for it in principle, this is what you'll get. Now, if the government had done that, then either they'd have been scared out of the room by the adverse reaction, <laughs> uh, or, 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 or alternatively, um, uh, they wouldn't have gone ahead with it. But that's why I think it's deceitful. Mr Howard points out that the voice will add another chapter to our constitution, and that will become the plaything of constitutional experimentation. And, most importantly, he told Alan that he hasn't heard a single thing about how adding a chapter to our constitution will actually help the lot of Aboriginal Australians. The Little Children is Sacred report exposed the neglect of the Northern Territory Government. In the 16 years that have gone by, nothing has been seriously done because it was established a few months ago that the relaxation of the alcohol bans was one of the reasons for the rampant abuse and also the rampant criminality which had overtaken the Territory. What has happened over 15 years? I'll tell you what has happened. Nothing in terms of good governments. And what we need in this country is not a new chapter in the Constitution, but we need state and territory and national governments to govern better for the Aboriginal people, to provide them with better health conditions, to provide them with better educational opportunities. And it's been demonstrated that when that happens, things do get better. Uh, it's not all hopelessness and despair. It can be better, but it won't be made better by inserting an elaborate uh, chapter into the Constitution that could be interpreted in any way that fits the fancy of a future High Court. Honestly, when you hear the sanity of this plain talk amid the doublespeak of today's Labor government, it really puts things in perspective. We should give this referendum a resounding no. Not just no to the voice, but no to the government. No to the bureaucracy and no to the Canberra culture that spawned this thing. Alan pointed out the layer upon layer of bureaucracy we already have for Aboriginal people. What's shameful is that we have any Indigenous social issues at all, given how much public resources are ploughed into the area. There are already 3,352 registered Aboriginal corporations. They're funded by the taxpayer. Mm. The Prime Minister has his own Indigenous Advisory Council. There is a so-called Council of Peaks, representing 70 Aboriginal corporations. The Aboriginal population is 3.8% of the nation. We've got 11 Aboriginal MPs in the Federal Parliament, which is 4.8% of the population. John Howard, what on earth is a voice other than another unwanted bureaucracy? Well, it's not only... It's also giving to a small section of the population a formal role in the governance of this country that nobody else has. It's as simple as that. The principle is... One person, one vote, one law, one sovereignty, one goal, one hope. They're the things we want. And the goal should be to ensure that as many as possible of Indigenous Australians are part of the, uh, the Australian dream uh, that share the bounty of this country. Large numbers of them do, but far too many of them don't. And our job is to do something about that. And you won't do something about that by creating, as you will through this voice if it gets through, a whole new saga of conflict, disputation, uh, grievance, complaint, all the sort of things that distract us from the simple task of making sure that children are properly fed, they're properly cared for with their health, they're given an education and they're given employment opportunities. Mm. Yeah, that should be our goal. Mm. Amen to that. They're both in their 80s. Unbelievable men. 
That's all we have time for this week. This is The Other Side Australia, your weekly news and commentary summary show right here on ADH-TV every weekend. We stream first on Friday night at 8pm and then we're up on demand for you anytime thereafter. And also remember our interview show, The Other Side Interviews, every Tuesday night on ADH. We stream after 6pm, not always spot on 6pm, but somewhere just after 6. And then all of our shows are on demand for you to watch at any time. Our interview with Graham Haycroft, the founder of the Red Unions, alternative unions for teachers and nurses that don't indirectly fund the, AB, the ALP and the ABC, I guess, <laughs> will join me for a very enlightening chat this coming Tuesday. So Graham Haycroft on the show this coming Tuesday. And don't forget last Tuesday's interview with Professor Nigel Biggar of Oxford University about how the British ended slavery. That's up on demand right now uh, if you haven't caught that one yet. But that's it for this week. Take care, have a good one, bye for now.